Hi, everybody. Uh, welcome to uh, Red State of the Union. I guess this is number five. We're up to episode five uh, here at Smodcastle. Uh, I'm your host, Kevin Smith, and boy, what a day I had. <laughs> but fuck that. We're not here to talk about that. Um, tonight, we're going to have a blast. We're going to talk to probably uh, the most integral component to what Red State became. Somebody who we didn't even know at the outset met, joined the production, and practically shepherded it on his back the entire time. Hands down, the best AD I've ever worked with in the world, Adam Druxman, is going to sit down, and we're going to talk to him, and we're going to find out what an AD really does, and you're going to see how fucking important it is and how weird that this position is so fucking unsung. Uh, but before we do that, we're going to open with a scene, and it's right at the top of the movie, um, so much so that you're going to see the opening credits. Uh, the driving, and then you're going to uh, see the... Uh, I'm, I'm not even going to tell you. You're going to see it, so fucking watch it. Um, but we'll watch this, and then we'll sit down and, and talk to Adam and talk to you guys, so enjoy. What are you going to do this weekend? Sweet Jesus in the morning. Again with these people? All right, Matt, can you pause it? Pause. Pause. Uh, stop it and restart it. Obviously, we're having technical difficulties. <laughs> Jesus. Close it, dude. Close it. Close quick time. Pull it onto your, your desktop. And then restart. <laughs> uh, folks, for the folks listening at home, uh, as we've explained in previous episodes, um, it, we're not really showing a very high-tech, high-quality version of the flick. We literally projected onto a large sheet here at Smodcastle uh, from Matt's laptop uh, using QuickTime. And it, it really does the job uh, and, and is normally quite flawless. But uh, Ready? I right, pretend you didn't see what you saw. And get ready for the magic of uh, anal penetration equals eternal damnation in red state. <sighs> what are you going to do this weekend? I don't know. You, what are you doing? Well, it's none of your business. Did you finish that thing for your lit class? No. It's due in like two weeks or something. No. Oh. Uh, sweet Jesus in the morning. Again with these people? Poor family doesn't have enough pain to deal with, but they gotta listen to that son of a bitch's BS while they bury their baby. Why is that old man gonna hurry up and die already? Uh, 
so as you see from the clip, uh, it's, it's our first glimpse at the, the Cooper family and their natural environment, uh, holding up placards at funerals. Um, it's the, probably the first and only illusion or even crossover with, uh, the people that everyone believes the movie's based on, the Phelps. A lot of people I've seen now, the movie's been accepted to Sundance this week. I've seen a lot of people online, uh, summarizing the movie. Some people have called it a, satiric comedy or a horror comedy and it's none of those things i've been saying for three years it's a horror film nobody apparently believes me um but the other thing they're always getting wrong is like oh this is the movie's a satire take off on the phelps and shit and he's gonna give it to him and shit and movie's not really about that everyone gets it given to them but it's not really the phelps it's everybody i think across the board sounds a little cryptic we'll leave it to a future episode but Long story short, that clip is actually the closest we ever cross over with the real world in terms of the uh, people that, you know, everyone assumes the movie's based on the Phelps. After that, it's a complete departure. What follows is that scene we showed you last week with Deb Aquila, where Michael Angarano's running into class and then the class begins. So if you actually, if you're at home, you're listening to this, you can cut last week's scene to the head of this week's clip and you have a good what i'm hoping to do is just slowly unveil the whole movie through the ears online up to a certain point i'm actually running out of footage that i can comfortably share beyond the room like uh soon you guys will start seeing stuff that i'm have to cut out of the podcast because i don't want people to hear that kind of stuff the detail of what's to come because that's that's where we kind of leap off and take the movie in a bunch of different directions um Shooting that little sequence right in front of that uh, church with the people holding up signs and shit like that. Looks easy. Looks like you could go run, steal it anywhere, but it, it wasn't. It was like everything you do in movie land, fraught with peril and complication. And uh, I never have to deal with that shit. Uh, basically, my job is I write it and then I show up and direct it. You know, somewhere along the way, people ask me questions about the details or basically yes or no questions that I can easily answer. But I show up on a day like the day where we're shooting the protest scene and everything's set up and there's a full crowd already in place and the, the uh, protesters are already lined up. There's cops in the street, fake cops, movie cops, fake traffic. Everything is lined up in place to the point where I could just kind of go, okay, let's do it. And then I don't even say action the guy behind the curtain says action. You know what I'm saying? It's not even really the director. It's generally the AD because the directors are so fucking lazy. They just can't even be bothered. We're just sitting in our chairs, Jabba-like, on our sides. You know, and it's just like camera, you know, picture, all that shit. It all sounds speed. And all I would have to do is say action. But it's too much work. So the man I'm about to introduce you to is the man who says it. Not only is he the guy that says action on the set, but most of the action you see in a movie is there because of the guy behind the curtain. And never mind, let's bring him in front of the curtain. Ladies and gentlemen, my AD, Adam Druxman. Um, one of, right off the bat, I'm going to tell you before he speaks, Adam is as Canadian as it gets, man. No, I have to say, out, about, borrow, tomorrow, and sorry. Oh, sorry. There it is. 
Um, when I met Adam, uh, this was the first flick I met him on. Uh, like, right away, I liked him because he was Canadian. And one of my favorite AZs I ever had was also a Canadian. They're insanely efficient at the job. <laughs> Let's go back into the start of your career. What was the first movie you AD'd on? Uh, oh, first one I AD'd on? Mm-hmm. Or PA? Uh, AD, let me think. Um, probably Booker, uh, 21 Jump Street spinoff. That was your first AD gig? Uh, yeah. So it's you and Richard Grieco? Yeah. Yeah, and I got a bunch of autographs and sent them to Winnipeg. All the kids loved it. (laughs) (laughs) Isn't he adorable? Um, Um, but, but you said you did mention PAing. What was your first PAing gig? Uh, How'd you get into the business? Uh, I left, uh, actually I left when I'm from Winnipeg, which is above the Dakotas in Canada. Uh, I went to Toronto to go to film school mm-hmm. and I, I made the decision way too late. I made the decision like in August for September. It's like the most popular film school in Canada. So it's like no way I was getting in. So I just moved there, put out a million resumes with nothing on it. People told me to become a PA. So I just put out a million resumes and. One day in the middle of the night, I got called for Watchers, a Corey Haim movie. Getting that job, I had no car or anything. They rented me a car. I was an office PA, and I ended up working on the show for the last four days. They went into post-production, and uh, I worked on it for about two months after that. Well, they brought you out as the yeah, post-production they asked me to, PA? Yeah, over all the other PAs, so that was pretty cool. Uh, that was because I mean, yeah. you must have made an impact. Well, you must have been a hell of an apple polisher or a dick sucker. Because <laughs> you... You're... <laughs> Um, no. What is that? Where was that? What was it? What you just kind of put on the sparkle and the shine, and the brief time you were there, that they were like, "Let's no. bring him in a post." I don't know. I think what I think what did it was uh, they they were shooting uh, late at night, probably, you know, a few days later, about three in the morning, and they were shooting way out. Of, it was in Toronto, and they were shooting way uh, way out of Toronto, and uh, they were going into the water. They had to put cameras in the water, and they back. Well, Canada wasn't like this, especially. I'm talking about late '80s. Canada wasn't like this, but there wasn't a Walmart. There wasn't any 24-hour stores. Everything closed on the weekends. Like, it was... Jungles and shit. <laughs> uh, and they basically, they were shooting. They had to put cameras in the water in the camera crew, and they needed, like, hip waiters. And they were calling all over, and they couldn't find it. And I was sitting there. I heard them on the phone. And I'm just sitting there at my little desk at, like, 3 in the morning, not knowing, just sitting there. And I said, why don't you call a local fire department and see if you can borrow them and then make a donation or something? And they were like... So they called the local fire department. They came down. They did everything. They, the, the firemen actually helped put the cameras in the water, and they totally took over, and it was, like, great. Okay, so from that production, you do post, and then what happens? Somebody takes you to the next gig? Because this yeah. is, like, that's how a lot of people find entree into the business. Like, some people, of course, want to write and direct right off the top of the bat, and if you could do that sort of thing, God bless you. But some people don't necessarily want to do that but want to work in movies, and we'd be more than happy to kind of break in on the PA level. So keep going. How did you go from that post-production PA to the next gig? The producer from that show that asked me to do post-production went back to L.A., and then she ended up doing a movie in... Uh, see, I didn't suck dick. It's a girl. All right, Just to good let, point. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, she ended up doing a movie in Vancouver called Narrow Margin with Gene Hackman and Ann Archer mm-hmm. and uh, asked me to do it. So uh, I And what gig did you have on that show? I was uh, office PA again, and I packed my bags in Toronto and moved to Vancouver, and then I was there, and uh, I worked up the AD ladder, and that's when, after that, I did Booker, and then I did a few films, and then uh, one day I was back in uh, Winnipeg over Christmas talking to my dad, and I go, I've been trying to, I totally want to go where the movie business is, it's in Los Angeles, it's where it's all generated from, 
And I said, I, I've been talking to immigration lawyers. They say, there's no way to get in and blah, 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 blah. You're never going to do it. And then my dad reaches in his wallet and pulls out an honorary discharge from the U.S. Coast Guard. And he goes, I'm American. Why don't you just ask me? Get out of here. Am I a stupid fuck? <laughs> How cute is it? You're like, I know I made a funny, so I burned a drink. And then you <laughs> you go and down some beer, smiling and shit. We're never going to get you off the stage. You're like, I'm a natural. <laughs> How did you not know your father was American? I, I Well, I did, but he'd been a kid. <laughs> he moved back to Canada when he was like 25. He'd been there for like 30, 40 years. But he so. was dual citizen. So yeah, he's you were dual, yeah, he's a naturalized U.S. citizen. Uh, he uh, he went to school and, uh, you know, uh, declared himself. Well, long story short, uh, his parents were American, had him in Canada and Winnipeg. Uh, they, he lived there till he was four. And then they moved to uh, Portland, Oregon. And then he served in the U.S. Coast Guard, did schooling, did the whole thing, blah, 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 blah. And then he went back to Winnipeg for a um, wedding and the coach of the Winnipeg Blue Bombers was there. The football, NFL. It's like, uh, I mean, CFL. CFL, it's, yeah. It's yeah. like the NFL without fans. It's like. <laughs> <laughs> you are a natural, man. <laughs> this isn't hard. <laughs> um. Uh, and my dad got, uh, the coach of the Winnipeg Blue Bombers was at the, uh, wedding and said, uh, I heard you play college football. And my dad said, I haven't played for like six years. And they closed down my program in the last year. And he tried out for the team the next day and played for 10 years and played in five great cups and won four. So he was. Okay, uh, slow it down though. Oh, Your father, what team did he play for? Winnipeg Blue Bombers. And he was in how many Grey Cups? Uh, five, and he won four. And he won four. So he's got like four championship rings. And for those that no. don't follow CFL, they, uh, that's the Grey Cup is their Super yeah. Bowl, right? Yeah. Uh, he, one year he got a tie clasp. Oh, oh tie no clasp. Rings. One no day, cl- uh, cufflinks. One year a ring. One out of four. Yeah. And he was making like $10,000 a year or something like that. Which I guess was a lot of money. I guess it was like, yeah, back then, totally. Yeah, it didn't show in our house. I think he spent it all on drugs. <laughs> Did you see one right for the beer? He's like, I've earned this one too. <laughs> Didn't show in our house. Didn't show in our house. Um, <laughs> so that's what kept, that's what brought him back to Winnipeg and kept him in Winnipeg and while you were born in Winnipeg. Okay, so you go down to America and work on uh, my first. Well, uh, I worked for three and a half years in Vancouver, and then I did a film, uh, Stay Tuned, a Peter Himes film. Uh-huh. In Vancouver, and then the producer uh, asked me to sort of um, said he really wanted to find me my first work when I moved to the states. Because I actually, uh, this is actually really cool. Um, the movie shot in all in, in Canada. Stay tuned. But uh, about two days shot in Arizona, mm-hmm. and we uh, th- because I had my uh, going to get my green card. I had my green card. I had to activate it by crossing the border. Mm-hmm. So I went with the show for the two days. It was right at the end. It was great. And I went and we shot. And then at the end, uh, we had this helicopter sequence at the end. We shot this, you know, we shot a shot with the helicopter. And I'm going to collect the radios from the helicopter. And the guy's sitting there, standing there and he's packing it up. It's night. And I go, do you fly home tonight? Like, where do you go with this helicopter? And he goes, I, like, I didn't understand. You just fly off? Or, I was young. Come on. Uh, <laughs> 
So he said, I'm actually flying back to LA in the morning. We had a rap party that night. And I, and I go, Oh, really? And he goes, Yeah. He goes, You, where are you going? I go, LA. He goes, You want to come? I go, Fuck, I'm moving to LA. This is like the greatest thing ever. So I said, Sure. Because <laughs> you're like, I'm arriving in LA in a in helicopter. helicopter. Yeah. <laughs> but I thought that was amazing. So, but the problem was, is that the rap, there was a rap party. So, Oh my God. It was like hangover in a helicopter for like three and a half hours of just, it was so painful, but it was so cool. But the best part was, is when we flew and he threw, th- through, he flew through downtown, over the, uh, through, over the Hollywood sign, over the, Holly- uh, Playboy Mansion. So I was like, is this the greatest entry into the show business? Or what? I love America. And they made, <laughs> <laughs> then him too made me have sex with him. <laughs> Jack a beer. Um, it's so my, it's my spacer to get yeah, more. Yeah, I'm like a Pavlovian rat. It is. You're just like ding. Um, okay, list. Uh, just sh- throw your dick out there and list for these cats uh, some of the movies that you've aided uh, since you've been here in the states. Because none of the Canadian ones are going to matter. Yeah. <laughs> you hear that massive reaction to the <laughs> CFL. <laughs> Uh, well, you said, uh, Magnolia, Boogie Nights, uh, Punch Drunk Love. Um, See, wait. All right. Let's stop right there. You've worked three times with Paul Thomas Anderson. Yeah. What is, uh, what's that relationship like? Yeah. How is he, is he very detail oriented or is he the guy that's like, Hey man, do what you want. I'll show up when we're ready. No, no, he's extremely detail oriented. He's ex, well, it's neat because, uh, two things. Uh, Boogie Nights and Magnolia were like, Every inch of that film was his mind. Like every inch of that film was like detail that he was all over. Like it's just, it's incredible. It's a really great experience. It's really neat. Mm. Punch Drunk Love, he tried something different. Uh, and, uh, you, you know, I think he really loved Adam Sandler and what he had to bring to the table and stuff like that. And he really wanted to, you know, try things and stuff. So he was, he was trying things. He was very different on Punch Drunk Love than he was on the others. And he was really, it was, it was, it was really neat to see, but, the Boogie Nights and Magnolia experience was incredible. It was like, especially Magnolia. Magnolia was like a hundred day shoot. Like it was a long, long shoot. And we'd come into a, a set like this. Yeah. And Paul would say, the camera goes whipping down here. It comes up to the Christmas tree, a shot on you, a shot on me, a shot off the label over to the audience and blah, blah, blah. And we'd basically him and I would go there. Um, and a lot of times with the DP, it depends. Sometimes the DP starts a little later. But him and I would go and we'd walk through the set and he'd basically have me walk around and be the people. And we, he'd work out his shots and shot list kind of thing. And then, uh, at the tech scout, uh, which is when we take all the, everyone isn't on at the beginning of the movie. What happens is people come on slowly, but surely it's all budgetary constraints and things like that that dictate that. But basically, um, uh, all the technicians like the gaffer and the key grip and all the, the major people come on heads of department and we go to each place. Like we'll come here and we'll talk about it. And basically I'll say the shots that Paul told me mm-hmm. and I'll go boom, 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 the Christmas tree that over the people, blah, 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 blah. And then what he'll, what will do, people will ask a few questions to Paul and then everyone will take their measurements and their things for, to get a crane in here or whatever it is, or a dolly that goes 45 miles per hour mm. or whatever it may be. Uh, and then, um, basically, uh, we'd come there like 80 days into our shoot and it would be those exact 
shots. It was incredible. Like it was amazing. Magnolia. He didn't alter. He didn't. It wasn't like ah, fuck it. I've changed my mind. No, it was like boom, 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 boom. We shoot those things. It was amazing. Like and it was all in his mind, and it's amazing. And what was amazing about him is he would. I was there for every meeting, everything, every detail, everything. And then I watched the movie. I go, how the fuck did he do that? Like, I didn't even see that. What was he? Like, it was, it's amazing. Like, I go, oh, that too? Fuck, fuck him. <laughs> no, it's incredible. No, it's just so layered. It's incredible. It really right. is. Inc- it's, it was a really He's a magician. Movie. He is. <laughs> um, okay, besides PTA, who, who else, what else have you worked on besides the Paul Thomas Anderson canon? Uh, I've done... Uh Oh, I always hate, I always forget when. Well, lately I've done, I've been working with the Dowdles. Uh, John Drew did Quarantine and Devil. Mm-hmm. Um, I've done, uh, um, I did, I worked with John Frankenheimer. I did the, uh, it was, uh, extensive reshoots on Ranger Game. Uh, well, I was on for five weeks. I shouldn't say that. It was probably like about, uh, five, six, seven days of reshoots, mm. uh, up in Vancouver. And I was on for five weeks of prep and stuff like that. that was, right, right, right. He was neat to work with. Uh, he, it was funny. One day he, uh, started to, um, I was walking, or no, it was actually at the monitor. Oh, oh, actually, this was great. It was at the monitors, and I, he's sitting there, and he's looking at the monitors, and, and he's, he was like, uh, you know, he's famous for being this, like, gruff, like, like, tough mother, you know. And he's sitting there, and he's looking at the monitors, I'm standing over his shoulder, it was like one of the first shots, and we're in this set that's like multi-tiered, like, the, it, it, we built the, I can't even remember what it was. It was, I think it was a hotel set, and there's things going on at three or four levels, and I'm standing behind him, and, and he's looking at the monitor and he swings his head up and looks at me and he goes, he goes, what the, what the fuck are you doing here? And I go, I go, what do you mean? He goes, why are you on the set? And I go, well, I got this guy on the set queuing that, I, uh, you know, Danny Trejo. I got this guy up there with Ben. I got this guy, uh, this person with Charlie's. We got the thing that I got a guy standing by the camera ready to tell me when, uh, they're set to cue the action, blah, blah. And he goes, okay. And swings his head back. <laughs> And I go, action! <laughs> and it was sort of like, <laughs> no, it was crazy. And then, and then, uh, and then later on, like, we'd, uh, he'd always walk to his trailer and he, he, he would always lean forward when he was walking. Like, I think he had a problem with his knees, although he played tennis all the time. <laughs> so I don't understand that, but, okay. Frankenheimer's like an onion, man. You just keep peeling him and he's complex. <laughs> So he's walking to his trailer and I'm following him and all of a sudden he does that swing around and he swings back into me. He goes, you know, I, in my old dad used to fucking tear people apart and make them cry. I go, I like you. And then he swung back and kept walking to his trailer. (laughs) (laughs) That's totally true. No embellishment. Um, What? um... And he's like six, eight or something. Well, leaning is about six, but. Go ahead, Jake. <laughs> you were in that one. Um, tell them what, uh, what an AD does. What is, when you like, and use, we'll use Red State as an example. You got on a Red State. What's the first thing you did? It's a low budget show. Uh, first t- come out to a four. I tell company. my wife I'm not making any money. Yeah, that's tough. I would imagine. <laughs> yeah. No. Uh, what, what happens is I first have to break down a script. Uh, basically, everyone knows a, a script is a script and, but to me, uh, it's all the, basically I strip it apart and I pull it into little segments of, you know, here at the Smod Castle, uh, out on the street, you know, uh, at LAX. Sorry to mention that. Um. (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> it wasn't LAX, it was JFK. Oh, man. Okay, sorry. <laughs> okay, LAX then. <laughs> Uh, and I basically I break out all, all all the scenes, and then I also break apart parts, like in that scene that we saw at the beginning of the uh, smodcast uh, in the car. The driving part is one scene; the arriving at the funeral is another, and I have to keep breaking down to the sort of the minute parts. And uh, basically, I have to uh, uh, attribute all the elements. Uh, you know, for example, the funeral. Uh, it would be the casket, the pallbearers, the uh, the hearse, the driver, the uh, the funeral procession, the the our, our um the mourners, our, our mourners, are on and on and on. The police in the street, the the people just walking by, you know, on and on and on. I got to think of all those elements and and so, sort of break them down and blah, blah blah. And then what I do is after I've done that, I take the puzzle and I got I have to decide. You know, I talk to the producers, uh, John and Jason and uh, Shay, and I basically, and Elise, and I basically say, you know, they tell me we have 25 days, and I broke it down to my original one. Uh, I think I said it was like about 28 days. I go, I can't do this in 20, you know, and it's a, it's a back and forth sort of thing that we do to figure out how to make the puzzle work. Uh, and then what, uh, what happens is then we get surprise hits like actors aren't available on this day or locations aren't available on that day and this and that. And the, the puzzle keeps fragmenting. We keep having to adjust and react to it. Uh, things also happen. Things break down, this and that. And meanwhile, where's the director? <laughs> it's true. And that's not just me, though. To be fair, that's a lot of directors. Like all of this shit goes on while we're not even while we're sleeping, while we're doing, while we're jerking off, while we're ha- smoking weed, while we're talking about the movie to other people, while we're doing all the things that most people heap tons of credit on us for. Nobody thinks about the true mechanics. Like this dude literally looks at a script like the way Neo looked at the Matrix. It's all fucking numbers and shit like that. To me, I'll just sit there and talk about, and then there's this scene, man, where we go in the chapel, and it's going to be spooky and shit. This dude's going to be real creepy and whatnot. And he's sitting there going like, well, it's going to take about 26 elements to make it creepy, and I have to list them all and make sure they're all available for that one moment in time. Like, he's Rain Man. It's crazy, man. Like... But the work that he puts, that he, he puts into it, the, all the work that goes into it is mind boggling. So much so that for, I've been director 17 years, I stay out of the process because I'm like, one, I'm the kind of guy that's naturally lazy. And if I saw that much work was required to do what I wanted, I'd be like, Oh, don't do it. Let's just do something. Let's just do it with puppets. <laughs> like a- anything to make it simpler and easier and stuff. So I tend to keep my head out of it, but it is astounding when you think about, just the scene that we saw in the car. Um, how many elements at work? Like basically, there's three scenes there from the credits. First, you see the car driving, yeah. which is in it, the insert car, insert car driver, police, on and on, lighting on the vehicle, yeah, on and on and on. Then we have to take all the equipment and put it on the vehicle, like the monitors and the sound and the video, and on and on and on. And insert cars just eat up time because it's it's a moving and ent- you talked about it the other day with Dave about mm-hmm. the uh 
uh, risk and projection. Yeah, yeah, they, yeah. It just eats up time because it's uh, you're putting everything on a physical moving thing. And shooting, then, yeah, actually shooting in the real world, doing process yeah. trailer. Process trailers where they have this very low to the ground, uh, for lack trailer. of a better description, trailer that they pull the car onto and tow the car around, and there's enough room on the trailer. It's wider than the street length or the length of a, a, a lane yeah. yeah a lane or something like that. thank you yeah. it's a little wider than that so generally the cops are always behind you when you're shooting and they're not noticeable cops you usually have like four or six picture cars behind you that are always meant to be there to keep continuity for editing but also just to keep traffic back and so yeah. you don't see the cops so on this trailer, they'll load up a fucking dolly and they'll load up track and they'll load yeah. up the camera and the entire camera team. And, and the grip. Lights are hanging off, so it's getting wider. It's even getting wider than it should be to opposing traffic. It's it just, looks ridiculous. It just it looks like a, a parade float yeah. um, just coming down the street. And it's always moving at about 20 miles per hour yeah. max. Um, and it's just, it takes, it is a time eater. It just eats up the time and you always have a very specific route that you have to go and then you have to kind of loop back and start it again and time dies between each yeah. take. And Adam had the great idea, as Dave told us a couple of weeks back, of like, let's try, I, I did some rear screen projection on a movie and it really worked out on that project. But and sorry so, to suggest it. Yeah, so it was just like that. And um, and Dave was like, let's give it a shot. And it looks great. Like, it totally fucking works. And it saved us an insane amount of time, which generally some filmmakers like Paul, that would never be a consideration. Paul's like, we're going to do it until it's right. We're going to do it until it looks like what it looks like in my head. He's an artist. I'm one of those dudes that's just like, I wrote some shit a couple of years ago. I mean, we don't have to stick to it, you know. It's like whatever's easiest for everybody. I'm quickly throwing the towel as long as it's easiest for everybody and shit. So Adam was every step of the way would would fight me on shit where he, I was just like, uh, he was like, well, this is going to require this. And I said, okay, we don't need to do that. He goes, no, no, that's worth doing. And I'd be like, yeah, but nothing hard is worth doing, Adam, ever. <laughs> it was amazing. I had to watch my the way I worded things because if the words came out like if I said, "Hey, oh, we can't that door won't stay open, but if we use the doorstop that's at the foot of the door, we can." And he go, "No, forget it. Fuck it. We don't need that. Let's go. We'll shoot over here." I'm like, "No, I would just, like it's done while we're talking." He's like, "Adam, how many times?" Next, yes. he would just like, "Let's move on. <laughs> we're done with that." It, but it were, yeah. In my favor, I always had the budget <laughs> on my side. No, I like know, on every a... other show, people would probably be like, "Dude, go again. <laughs> Do another take. Go ahead, lavish yourself." But I kept, I was able to be like, "Hey, man, we only have four million. We got to keep going. Stay yeah. on budget. We should keep moving forward." Um, but it was a really nice, uh, a really nice balance. More than a balance, I, I've kind of mentioned on the Dave show. The triumvirate, the directing department on this movie, and I actually could take it back to casting too, because Deb's the casting director. And the four of us, uh, really kind of carried this flick. I mean, I, I love the movie and I'm definitely responsible. I'm, I'm the author, but it is, I can't take all the credit. Every scene I watch, I'm like, that was thanks to the brilliance of Deb Aquila way back in casting. That was thanks to the brilliance of Dave Klein shooting on the day, but all of it, is always thanks to the brilliance of Adam Druxman, who had to literally stage it like a war campaign weeks in advance with no money. And every time he kind of came forward, it was like, we need 28 days. And we were like, we only have 25. He's like, okay, I'll figure it out. And he went away and come back. And then he's like, we need maybe 20,000 more to do this. And we we're like, there is no more. He's like, okay, I'll figure it out and come back. And it was all done. Like there was never a moment where it was like, oh, just screw all you Americans and your can't do attitude. <laughs> 
<laughs> it was just you were just always so game and 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 willing to to try to to make it work uh, in terms of what we had going. All right, uh, but go back. We we kind of stopped. So you. You're breaking down the script. That's the first thing you do. Yeah. And then you turn it into a schedule of sorts where you're like, okay, we have 120 pages to shoot. Over the course of the 25 days we can afford to shoot, how do I make that? You have to break the math down essentially and go like five, six pages a day is the ratio we're going to kind of work. Then he, it's not that simple where it's just like, okay, we'll just do the script in pages of five or six and break it up that way. He has to figure out what work can be done on which days and combined. Because let's say on scene three, you're in a parking lot of the fucking mall. And then scene 69, later on in the movie, you're also in a parking lot in the mall. If you're shooting sequentially, you would go to that location, leave it, and weeks later come back to that location. That's not efficient. So essentially, Adam has to sit there and go like, okay, all these puzzles he's talking about is if I put this on this day, that's about four pages of work. Maybe I can cram one more scene on there if we can do it. And boom, that's the day. And then he had to do that with each fucking day. It is a painstaking art that never gets fucking credit, man. It is the toughest job in a movie because it's not the fun of like, I'm going to imagine shit. I'm going to put my hands up in the air and frame things. Uh, you know, I'm going to write whatever I want. It's the hard nuts and bolts of actually making a movie. It's the unsung job of an AD, just like the unsung job of a producer, a physical producer, not a producer that like, hey, I put these two people together in a room and now my name's on the movie. I'm talking about motherfuckers down there in the dirt actually doing it like John Gordon. Um, okay, so after you schedule, what's your next step? Uh, well, then it's a whole negotiation process with the producers and the production manager of uh, back and forth about what we're shooting, what I think we can shoot in a day and what they think we can shoot in a day. And it's, it, 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 it is, it's, it's, it's brutal because a budget really dictates something and, and, uh, you really want to squeeze more into a day. But what I do is I really look at the scenes and all scenes aren't equal. Like you, like, as you're saying, an average of five pages a day. In theory, that's what you do when you look at it, if whatever, whatever your calculation was. But if it's five pages a day, if you're doing a crash or you're doing, uh, like the Deb in the schoolroom, mm -hmm. that dialogue, that's five pages that she can talk and you can get through pretty, it's a, it's a, it's still a lot of work. Like you have a lot of people to cover and stuff like that. But to do an accident and then do something and then move somewhere else and do something else, that accident's going to take you half a day. It's not going to take you like three hours to set up. And what happens if it doesn't work? There's a lot of rigs and things like, uh, you put in like spark effects. You put in things to enhance the accident. You have, you have effects that rig things that people, you know, you don't see, but they'll maybe blow the tire or crush, uh, cr break a window. Like, uh, it'll all be cute. So when you have to reset, that's like 45 minutes to an hour to reset something. So I have to take all that into account and it's just, it's brutal. And you have to negotiate with the producers and you have to say where we need help or where we need, you know, if, like I said, it was 28 days and we we're trying to make it 25. So we we're talking about a little sec simultaneous second unit to cover some of that. And it goes on and on and on. And then the worst part is when you actually have to go, I have to go to set and prove what I said, like that I just <laughs> fought for for five weeks. Now I got to actually pull that off. And something that people don't know, but the AD, it's like the most undesirable job. If you ever want to, you know, hurt someone, tell them to become an AD because basically what's happening is I'm, basically here's my position. I'm here. 
Here's the uh, director for his creative vision. Here's the producers for his financial vision. And here's the crew that's lugging around like 5,000 pounds of equipment, or probably actually a lot more. And basically, I have to get the crew to keep moving the shit around and moving it out of shots and moving it around and setting it up and blah, 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 blah. And I have to keep trying to help the director get his vision, keep trying to help. It's like so schizophrenic. And it's like you, you, you just get beaten from every direction. Like someone's always bitching. If it's, you know, someone's always coming to you and going uh you got to go faster someone's always yeah. going what the fuck how many more is there made my constant lament to adam the whole show is adam why aren't we shooting <laughs> we should be shooting right now why aren't we shooting and adam's like we're gonna be shooting very shortly and inside he was thinking well we'd be shooting a lot quicker if you pick up a light or something you fat fuck Um, it, the, the amount of work and the amount of balancing that he has to do on a, every AD has to do on a set is kind of astounding. Um, because everyone moves on the AD's command, even the director. Like the director, uh, is, I certainly doesn't, uh, is not a slave to the AD, but I trust that he knows what's best for the production because he's given it far more thought than I have and spent far more time setting it up. So you're always kind of going like, well, what are we doing, Adam? What are we doing next? Every stop of the movie, we'd finish something. I'd be like, what's next, Adam? I mean, that's like basically you could turn your brain off when your AD is as good as him because you don't have to keep anything up there except what you need. Like on this movie, all I needed was the time and space to watch every performance and look for every beat that I was going to cut into the movie. That's all I needed. Everybody else took care of the work for, uh, that that allowed me to function and do that. So I didn't even come to prepare it every day. I didn't even know what we were doing and shit. I just just there to watch as intently as I could, tweak when I could, offer help. We had such amazing pros in terms of actors that there wasn't a lot of I can say except like you're doing great, man. Do it again or something like that. So even something as simple as just like uh, I know we're shooting. The chapel scene, the fucking trailer scene, and the sheriff station scene today. I wouldn't even come to work with that so that we'd shoot one of those. And then I'd be like, Adam, what's next? And he would just say, oh, that would be the trailer park. I was like, okay. Then we'd go do that. And after we were done, I'd be like, Adam, what's next? What's the next thing you do after you sit there and you've put together the schedule and you've fought with the – and you've figured out the balance and the puzzle? Uh, it's basically, tw- well, uh, this movie we were supposed to shoot 12 hour days, so it's basically watching your clock tick away for 12 hours on your plan. But even and before just, production, oh, what, what do you do? Like you, in like, production? You, pre. Yeah. After pre- you've broken shit down in pre. Oh, oh, pre-production. Basically, I just chase around, uh, m- my theory is to basically turn over any, every stone and try and figure out, like, sort of, my goal, it's funny, I, not funny, I love what you just said because that makes me feel great because my goal for a director is to let him work with the actors and spend all his time with the performance, like not deal with any of that shit. And it's it, it, and every director is different, but some directors get a lot into the little minutia details. Some get into it halfway, some get into it, some just lay back, it depends. But... My biggest goal, and that, that's uh, that's uh, that's flattering because it, it, that to let you spend the time with the actors is the greatest fucking thing in the world. That makes me feel great. Totally. And because there's so a director answers two billion questions on a movie, like in pre-production, production, post, and it never fucking stops. And it was like 
Uh, That's it, all it, the job requires, really. You just yeah. have to know how to answer a question convincingly. Yeah, you it, can't go like, I don't know, what should it be? Unless you want to be that guy. And I'm very often, I'm like, I don't know, what do you think? <laughs> but generally speaking, when people come to you, it's like red or green. You're like red. Yeah. And they're like, right on. And off they go to do their job. Somebody comes up to you and they're just like, you know, marshmallows or toast. I'm like, toast. And they <laughs> walk away and suddenly that decision's been made. It it's, really is like yeah. that. And if he doesn't answer it, everyone's walking around like this. Like they're buying, go, they're Adam, buying waffles. Adam, what they're it buying. Be? Yeah, yeah. yeah, they're all over. <laughs> oh, no, Groceries are coming in from all different places. <laughs> um, yeah, but so, they, they, most people, I'm always like, go ask Adam. Adam knows. I have no idea. On most things, everyone kind of, uh, every department kind of went to you more so than I'd ever seen on any other production. Like everybody went to you. You were getting beaten from all ends because not every time, not every time everyone went to you was it a pleasant like, Hey man, what's next? <laughs> Some people were just mad. Some people were just like, Hey man, when's, when's this going to end? Hey, when are we eating? Hey, fucking, are we under budget? Are we going to make this? <laughs> like clearly we're going over here. Shit like that. Um, what, uh, what is that? How do you balance that? How do you fucking keep, how do you keep from like just going, fuck off, leave me alone and just hugging yourself and you're shaking, rocking I, back and forth? I, I don't know. My wife asked me that. Um, I, I, I don't know. Uh, I, I don't know why. Uh, but one thing I know is like whatever the plan is, especially in the, the movie business is so Murphy's law. It's like everything you plan fails. It's like, it's like people always try. I always try, uh, like whenever I'm back in Winnipeg or, or or visiting with family or friends, and I'm trying to explain the film business. The uh, people don't understand it, but what I always say is the film business is like uh, throwing a wedding every day for like 80 days straight. It just doesn't fucking stop, and things keep crumbling. The flowers don't show up in the fucking tent, and there's no air conditioning in the tent. It just fucking the chairs are breaking. It just fucking doesn't stop. I don't know why I don't crumble, but uh, maybe because I'm Canadian. I don't. I'm just joking. I think it is. I <laughs> no, think it has a lot to do with, to the, do with the Winnipeg in you. There's such a can do about can do about that you. Is. You know, <laughs> uh, just like we can get this done. Come on, everybody, let's put on a show. You're like uh, the dude in the Little Rascals that kept making them do shows. I don't know if it was Spanky or Alfalfa, but you're one of those cats, man. I'm probably Alfalfa. I'm definitely Spanky. You're Alfalfa. Hey, what are you saying? <laughs> Uh, no, but I, 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 I don't know. I just keep going. I don't know why. I, I don't know. That's just some. I, when do you bring on the rest of your team? Cause you talked about before and I thought that was really interesting. It's such a great point that a lot of people don't realize. A uh, movie happens in stages. It's not like, you know, we start in pre-production and everybody's there just waiting to do their job. It starts with a skeleton crew and slowly kind of builds. And the last, the ones to come on, I guess, are the actors technically. Yeah. Would that be right? Yeah. That you hire your department? Two or three weeks out, depending on the movie, I hire my second AD, and then I have a second second AD who comes in the last week, and then I have a bunch of PAs uh, that help me. Uh, I, I had a whole list of them, Danny and Mark and What is the, James. why is it second second and not third? Uh, it's third in Canada. Yeah. I, I don't know why. I, I guess they're, they're put, in the States, they put them on the same tier, I guess. Uh, and there's just your key second AD and then your second second. So it's just. Once you've got the, your AD team on, how do you break it down? What does the second do versus what does the second second do? I know, but tell these cats. Uh, well, you can use them differently, but basically my second AD is, uh, basically they start inputting all the elements that we learn. I go out with the director and the DP, uh, um, Dave and we go to sets and we look at, and the production designer Cabot and we go look at sets. 
And any information I get, I just sort of write down and then basically I call or I give the information to my second second. He uh, inputs it into our schedule so that we have it because you can't remember everything, uh, obviously. And uh, and what happens is uh, we, it's almost like a database. We have a program called Movie Magic. It's like almost like a database. Um, and basically the, the information travels with that set. I attribute it to that set and it travels with that set. But... What Dan, my, my, Danny was my second, and what was happening is, uh, as we're learning things, he's calling all the departments and telling them, giving them the information so people can keep up because the train moves pretty fast once it leaves the gate, and it just keeps going and going and going. So it's basically that he he keeps up with that. Once uh, uh, my second second starts, we start dealing with the actors and stuff, and when we go to set, basically my second is on set with me. My second second is dealing with all. Basically, my second second deals with tomorrow and yesterday, and we deal with today and what we're putting on the screen, mm. so that we're not distracted. I uh, that's how I delineate. Other ads do it differently, but uh, I delineate that way so that uh, we don't have to pay attention to, especially in today's technology era. Like uh, it's really evolved, and there's so much emails and texts, and it just keeps attacking you and phone calls. And I can't be on the phone and servicing Kevin and servicing the movie and. I don't believe Hold in on. that. Explain so I... servicing Kevin. <laughs> <Hey>. <laughs> Not the interview again. <laughs> um, yeah, and it's basically that. It, 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 technology's moved very fast, and, and I just have someone that does it in the background all the time, uh, so that we're not disturbed. Because it's amazing how you know how fast an hour passes on the set. It's it's cra- crazy. Like just like that funeral scene. You're setting up those people. You're locking up the streets, and and you don't just get to lock up a street. Like there's, we have real. There's a movie uh, or a extra in the movie that was a police officer, but there's real police officers that we have to deal with because we're interrupting real traffic. There's people walking down the street. There's cars coming down the street, and it's just just an onslaught, and it keeps going and going and going. And yeah, it's just all about it's 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 it just doesn't stop. No, but you get to be creative. In what way? Explain that. Because so far they've heard about like it's all technical and it's all this. You, you're the man behind the man. You're the person that makes it all fucking work. But you also get to be creative as well. Basically, you are director co-directing the movie because you do everything in the background. An AD directs all the background actors. But but uh, but uh, yeah, that our only well, it, it, it varies. What you're saying it varies because. Um, most ADs, it's a mis- assistant directors are mis- it's a mislabeled ladder. You become producers because you're dealing with, like you said, all the technical things and financial, trying to make the schedule and stuff. And you eventually be a lot of them become production managers and producers. When I got into this, uh, I always wanted to be creative. I didn't. I wanted to do the best for the film. You know, there's all my attitude is there's always a way to make it work. Like, you know, we'll be shooting something if we don't finish today. You know, maybe we can. You know. If all we owe is a shot on Kevin like this, maybe we can paint. You know, we may be at uh, um, where was it? JFK. Mm-hmm. We may be at JFK, but there could be a wall that we could just paint and do the the close up of uh, of Kevin at the airport uh, instead of uh, rushing what we're doing right here, where we're seeing out onto the tarmac at the at the airport. And my attitude was always: there's always a way to make it work. I can fit it in. I'll figure it out. I'll make it work. Um, so, and, uh, so I always want to do things that are best for the film. 
Um, I'm not I'm saying this something bad about other ADs. I'm not saying it that way, but my that's my attitude and my mo. And I always want, like Kevin said, for I don't get upset. I don't. I just want to make it work. I want to make things work. I want to get through it. And the film business is brutal. Like it never stops. It's always you're always climbing uphill, and it's always it's it's hard. It's like it's not glamorous. It's not like any of those things that uh, you read in the magazines. Uh, so I always want to make it work, and that's sort of my my attitude there. And uh, I don't even remember the question. Did I, did I get a contact high in the back? You might have. <laughs> <laughs> it might have been all the beer you've been doing. Oh, yeah, sure. Uh, I mean, tell them about your notes. You, uh, We made funny on the movie all the time because you carried around uh, your notes and it, you, we made we called you a beautiful mind behind your back because you look like Russell Crowe when he was always writing little numbers and mumbling to himself and shit like that. <laughs> like Adam had this paper that had almost hieroglyphics on it full from side to side of all this writing and it only made sense to adam and people would be like we're never going to make it man how are we going to finish this and he'd be like just look and he'd hold the thing up but he could he could see it because he could read the matrix but everyone else they couldn't read it and they were like the fuck's that mean he was like oh no this means we're going to be done and he he would he would every once in a while he'd explain it. I was like, "What does this mean?" And he would uh, like highlight. It was kind of like looking at a star field and how people find like Cassiopeia and the Big Dipper. Like with in in the mess of all this writing, he would all of a sudden outline something that with a pen that would make sense. Where you're like, "Oh, I get this." Like you mean camera here, camera here, camera here, and we're out and shit. So we began to speak in Adam's shorthand with his writing. How long you been doing that? Uh, I don't know. Probably a few years now. I, he's referring to. <laughs> I basically would draw. We talk through Dave Klein and Kevin and I would talk through the shots, and I just put them on an overhead schematic of the out, the basically the set, and I put the shots. And then what I do is I color coordinate them so that I could see it faster. But <laughs> no one ever knew what that meant for some. I kept trying <laughs> no. to explain it. To I did a little it just legend. Like you had a piece of paper with a marker, a bunch of different markers, all on your fist, and you just went like that. <laughs> But it actually, there was sense to it when you, it was like looking at a, like when they used to show like kind of a dance, how to dance where they put dance steps yeah. down and whatnot and show you how to cha-cha or something like that. It essentially, it was like looking down and of course this represents the camera and, and this is the angle. This is one angle. This is the other angle. This is this, this is yeah. that. And it was, it was all kind of color coordinated for this scene, this character, but it was insanely efficient and he was able to kind of cross things off as we did him and be like, we're done here. So we would just look at his little map. As the day went on and be like, how much is left? What's left on the map? You know, we were like Dora the Explorer. Just trying to check things off and shit. And Kevin would go, that's too hard. We've got one shot left. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we're going, oh. There's a couple things that I just totally, that happened quite a bit on the movie where I was just like, um, you know what, man, let's do this in a oneer. And that people were like, yeah, you don't want to do coverage? I was like, nah, I think it'd be a strong test of their performance as actors if they could do it in one. <laughs> Plus, I want to go home, you know. Um, so, uh, but then also, there were times where it was just like we don't need it. Like we were shooting out of Firestone Ranch and working on the climax of the film, and uh, we could use more time out there when we were there. It, it 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 was way more ambitious than we had time for, and I thought we did a great job of stuffing as much as we did into all the exteriors. This was all the exterior work for the outside of the Cooper's count, uh, compound. There was tons and tons to do. We had a, a, what, how many, three, four days up there at first? I can't remember. 
five. Five days. On Monday through Friday. And then we wound up at one point we were going to be leaving to on the Monday to go shoot what was the original opening sequence of the movie, which took place at the airport. Essentially, uh, the Michael Angarano character, uh, Travis, that you saw, um, took, uh, we opened on him in an airport and he was looking at a National Guardsman holding a rifle to kind of set it very post 9-11. And, uh, you saw his grandmother kind of hugging him goodbye and talking to his mom as, as she left and went through security. And, and you saw there was a dude in the background who come back to later on. But it was, there was nothing really, there was no dialogue. It was just kind of an opening. And again, something I'd written three plus years ago and stuff. So here we are three years later actually making Red State and we're making the third act and it's astounding. Like as we're building it, we're like, this shit's good. Like we're, this is way better than we, it deserves to be. Like it was almost like we found a leprechaun and made him make a good movie for us or something like that. It was so tight. But we were going to start to have to give up some things. And I'd been so easy throughout the whole production of like, we don't need that. Let that go. That don't matter. That's fucking chuffa. I learned that from Bruce Willis. That shit's chuffa. You don't need that. (laughs) Throw it out and whatnot. But then as we got toward the end of Firestone Ranch, that's where I was like, no, no, this is worth getting. Let's do this. Let's get this. We have to get this. And I became a little more fucking, you know, people have described me. Adam Siegel in the last movie described me. Very aptly, he said, you're, you're like a fluffy cloud and it doesn't seem like anything matters until you hit the iron core in the center <laughs> of the fluffy cloud and you realize that there's something here. There's a plan. Other than that, though, it just seems so easy. But, um, he was definitely kind of onto something because I hit my iron center by the end of the movie because I'm like, this matters. This is the end. This is how we're finishing. So we want to go big and make sure it all, we get everything we can. And we did some horse trading. There was a helicopter shot that at one point we were going to try to do. But suddenly it was like, if we got rid of this, we save ourselves a little cash that we could put into this. And then the big decision came about like, look, on Monday we're going to have to go shoot this scene at the airport. Or we can maybe just stay here and keep shooting. And we opted to cut the opening scene of the movie to stay at Firestone Ranch and continue perfecting the third act because we liked what we were getting. You didn't mention the weather. That that's what that's why we came to this that's right because your plan absolutely would have worked we would have made firestone ranch in five days but we got so fucked by the weather whole time we're shooting it's gorgeous mostly times we're inside and shit one time we have to go outside for five days straight and it's all the outside stuff the entire third act um suddenly we got bombarded by these weird moving showers where it would pour rain for like three minutes and then stop and be sunny and bright. But the problem is it made all the dirt into mud. All the vehicles were wet. Covered in water. Everybody's fucking soaked. So we had to go out clean. We, other people I watched, had to go out and clean shit up. And then once it was all clean, action, and suddenly it would rain again. It was almost like God going, "Are you? I let you go on dogma. Stop making religious movies. (laughs) But we... We did get a little bit boned, but we were able to kind of work through it. And thank God we had that extra day on Monday because that kind of made up for the time we lost by just watching the rain come down. And there were some things that I could lose from the script where I'm like, we don't need this shot. We don't need this cutaway. But soon we got to stuff where I was like, I can't lose anything else. These are all vital organs. So we have to find a way to do it. And the way we found to do it was just losing the, that airport scene. But Firestone Ranch was, uh, was uh, I think... 
your piece de resistance, as they say, the fact that you were able to pull that off in, in the time we had, affected as we were by the weather, was kind of astounding. I had been impressed by the chapel. Chapel <laughs> scene in the movie for me, that second week of production, we yeah, did three think, days. Yeah, second week. And then Monday's we had a Monday. weekend off, and then from Monday to Friday, we shot the chapel sequence yeah. with Michael Parks <clears throat> and the Cooper family. Now, <clears throat> this scene in the movie... I think runs 18 minutes. It's an 18 minute, essentially a monologue. He, he, there's some give and take with the audience, but really it's an 18 minute fucking Michael Parks monologue that will bend your fucking mind. He delivers it so well. But to me, it was a fucking nightmare on paper. Cause I'm like, Oh my God, there's so many things we have to cover. We have to cover him. We have to cover the family, everybody in the family. We have to cover Melissa specifically. We have to cover. Um, uh, Kyle in the cage, the guy up there, like all these. And it, to me, that's the kind of shit drives me nuts. And I also hate making movies in a big room with everybody watching too. Cause it's so embarrassing to be like, this is my job to sit here and be like, make pretend differently. You know, it just feels <laughs> weird to do in front of people. So I, I hate it. And scenes like that where I'm like, I was cursing the writer. Like, I can't believe you wrote this. And now you have to actually sit here and fucking shoot it the way that it was written in the script. But you planned it in such a way that I, it was effortless. Like by the end of the first day, I was like, Oh my God, I'm enjoying this. <laughs> like all the tension that I carried, all the like, man, I don't want to do this. It's going to be so much work. You completely alleviated to the point where I could just literally kick back and enjoy Michael Parks's performance, like just concentrate it, which to me was so special because the whole reason we were there was all I wanted to do was see what it was like to work with Michael Parks for a whole movie rather than just watch him for 10 minutes in a clip here and there. Just like, what would it be like to get inside that head and watch that guy take the dialogue and spin genius with it? So that was a great gift for me. You took all the pressure off, and I never once was like, oh, this fucking scene, we'll never get out of it. It's such a headache. I just enjoyed it. And on any other movie, I would have been like, this is fucking work, man. This is absolutely work. Do you want to be my agent? Yeah, I could get you jobs and shit, man. <laughs> but not with people like Paul Thomas Anderson. You're doing well, dude. You actually dumbed down to work with me. Um, let's open it up to the audience and see if they have anything to ask you. And, uh, and then we'll wrap up. Anybody want to talk to Adam Juxman, uh, a very, very gifted AD? He's too nice. You, uh, you seem like such a nice guy in person. Um, do you have the same demeanor on set? I've always heard. ADs are real pricks on set. So do you have the same demeanor on set? What a great question. And you're right. You ADs, since they have to run the set, are usually very dictatorial. Um, I worked with one who'd quit smoking right before we started shooting. <laughs> nice. And then started smoking two days before rap. Um, picked it up again. And he was like, whew. What a good idea this was. I was like, I wish you'd done it on day fucking two. Because he was really tense the whole time. But you were always a cool cucumber. Even when people were like exploding in your face and shit, you're always like, okay, we'll work around it. Don't worry. <laughs> um, but you, I guess you should answer. The I, I mean, I could answer as a guy who watched you. He is the same guy here that he is on set, but I've worked cool. with, I've uh, coming up the ranks when I was, uh, like a second, second and a second. I would work with ADs like that. They were amazing in prep. They were so nice, and it was awesome. We'd go out to dinner. We'd go we'd go for drinks. It would be the greatest thing. And then we guess this, day one would start, and it was they just tear me a new asshole for like 80 days straight. 
it was it was brutal. No, but I know what you're talking about. No, I don't change. I on I get a little more serious actually, but then I goof around a lot. Yeah, no, slightly you're, you're, serious. Yeah, slightly only yeah, serious. but you're serious. But but you've got that Canadian thing where <laughs> it's like you ask a serious question about everything. Like everything sounds ends like a question and always sounds serious. Like, are we gonna have root beer floats today? <laughs> You know, and, and suddenly you're like, uh, I don't know, should we? <laughs> the way he's saying it. Taquitos. Yeah, we like today the ta- might be taquito day. <laughs> and you're like, are you asking me or telling <laughs> He, You used to say that to me a lot. Yeah. I'd ask him a question and he'd go, are you asking me or telling me? <laughs> I literally couldn't figure it out. <laughs> um, but he is. He's a super fucking sweet guy, man. And uh, kept his composure and shit. Even when those around him were losing theirs, he always kept his placid lake in the middle of the production. And that's what you want. An AD that just makes you feel like, oh, yeah, let's go enjoy making this. Because that's what it should always be. So many people make it work. Make it more work than it needs to be and treat it so fucking god awful seriously and yell, you know, like screamers and shit like that. And you're just like, no, at the origin of this is like, it's just make pretend like this should be fun. This is a dream come true and shit. So he's the guy you want on a production, man, because not only is he wicked smart at the job, but he's also calm, cool, serene center at the heart of it, even when things are exploding around him. Excluding Red State, um, which film are you most proud of your work in? Even if it's not the best film, but that film where you watch later and you're like, that lawnmower man, I am God here. <laughs> what, what was that? Uh, the, the, the one I'm most proud about, I, I never really answered. I went off on a tangent from the contact high earlier. Um, but uh, uh, I never really answered the creative part. Uh, the AD's real creative Part in a movie movie making is the background, running the background, designing the background, blah 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 blah. The movie I'm most proud of, and it was a great fucking movie, was Boogie Nights because, like, I see, and everyone's seen it, whether you've seen TV or movies or something, and something's going on with the actors, and then all of a sudden you see like two extras do something weird, or someone in the background do something weird, or something just looked totally unnatural, and you're like, what the fuck were they thinking? They thought that was good. And that, like, that, that, that hurts me to see that when I see it, like, whether it was intent, sometimes it's budgetary constraints, but whether it's purpose, on purpose or accidental, but sometimes the director will use a take because the performance is really good and we fucked up the background in the background, but they use the take because of going for the performance. So it's not always, a lot of times you have to correct things happen out there and stuff, but that's my creative world. But Boogie Nights, hands down, like, when I watch that film from beginning to end, like, I designed all that background like I we I handpicked everyone like uh uh from pictures and interviews and like I just kept going and going and going like I was really because it was a period piece and it was like really important but uh it was it why whenever I watch that movie I feel really good because I watch it and it's like it just works it's like a to me maybe not to you guys but it, it's like a ballet to me the people moving in the back it just never deters from your attention to the actors but it adds to the movie and that's a really hard balance to find because you're working with people you've never met and they walk up and all of a sudden they're yours and you know uh in any world whether any business some people are kooky some people are normal some people are like super intelligent so you get all these people at once, like 150 people, and you're having a party at Burt Reynolds' house, and like the steady cam's whipping through, and people just do crazy things, and you're like, oh, and you blow a shot, and you, you know, like especially like a Boogie Nights or Magnolia, where we had those long takes. 
Someone, that guy's carrying that camera for two and a half minutes and you fuck up that take because it, it's me. It's like, they don't turn to anyone else. They don't turn to that guy or bring him around behind the set and shoot him. They are fucking, everyone looks at me. Why the fuck did you fuck that up? So it's brutal. So that movie is my hands down. I feel always, I, I love when I catch it on TV. I sit there and go like this. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Adam, can you give a little, uh, insight about, uh, Back when you were starting, um, when you were getting jobs as PAs, were you just blindly sending out resumes to studios, or like who are you, like how are you going about it? And then also now as an AD, how are you going about, uh, like where do you get your resumes from for PA jobs and stuff like that? Uh, well, to become. AKA Adam, can I have a job? <laughs> You're hired. <laughs> awesome. Um, uh, basically. There, the funny answer to that is it's weird. You never know when you get the job from. You try every avenue and everything. But what happens is when you get that first job on a set, there's like, you know, there could be 80, 100, 150 people. You meet all these people. And especially the ones directly related, like the AD department, the production office, producers, directors. Once you get in there and you work once, if you do a good job and you break your ass and that's what you come there to do that and you don't have attitude and all you're trying to do is make it work, you get work. Like it's as simple as that. And, and once you break that fucking first one, then someone suggests you, someone's on the next show. They call you, they go, Oh, how about that guy? They call you, uh, uh, other people, uh, like the production office says, oh, I like that PA on set, and they'll call you, and then you got a job on that show, and then you meet those people, and it just branches. It's just like, it's like a family tree of uh, dysfunctional people. You just get involved in it, and you just keep going with it. Thank you. And, and then, uh, and what was the second question? The, where do I get my PA? No, where would he send his, where would he send his resume? Well, when you get, when you get production, there's production listings, there's all sorts of things that, uh, tell you where shows are and what shows are going on. Um, uh, the trades, a little bit of everywhere or hearsay or whatever you hear. You call the production company and you ask who the, if you want to work in the AD department, you say, what's the AD's name? They'll give it to you and then you send in a resume. Uh, that's the crappier version, unfortunately, because a lot of times, like, I have, I have, like, you know, people I've worked with over the years and they're all on my staff and there's more than I can hire on a show. And, uh, we all get out of sync and then we come back into sync and then what happens? We trade PAs and stuff like that. So it's really hard to break in. Uh, but I'll take care of you. <laughs> and you don't have to do what I did to Kevin to get my job. <laughs> I hope not. Um, but the crucial piece of that pie, though, as you said, though, is getting in on the first one, doing a great job. Yeah. That's the people who you, who pop for you are the people you're like, wow, man, like that dude's always working. Like on this movie, um, uh, what is Mojo. it? Mojo. Yeah, we call Mojo. him Mojo. You call him, see, you had a nickname for him. I didn't even have Bitch. He was always hustling. James, Jim, uh, yeah, James Smith, James. Uh, Jellybean. Jellybean. Jellybean, who we're going to actually, I think we're going to bring on and do one of them with, with yes. the PAs. I think it'll be Jellybean and, and James Smith. Jellybean's awesome. To, maybe Megan, if she wants to come in as well. Um, but like uh, Jellybean, you took under your fucking wing, man, in a big, yeah. bad way. What was that all about? Uh, that was fun. <laughs> well, my, uh, my attitude, 
uh, is you know you got to pull your weight. You got to you're working for our department. I, I I don't like you know there's limited space on a crew and there's a zillion people in line to work on it. And I you know there's a new era of people with a lot of attitude and a lot of a uh, lot of uh, you know showboating and a lot of attitude, but not a lot of to back it up and just. Fucking hard work goes way further in my books than, uh, you know, looking cool, and and and. But that's because ju- you're Canadian. Oh, that's because I'm Canadian. In America, it's all predicated on looking cool and content and quality. That's the last thing <laughs> I think of it. <laughs> uh, and and basically, um, uh, basically, Tim, who we nicknamed Jelly Bean, uh, came in and he wanted to work on the show, and he took off. He was, goes to Arizona State or something, I think, and he took off the semester to work on the film. But he did it backwards. He took off the semester and told them he was working on the film before I met him. So I had to hire him because he was in a lot of shit with his school if I didn't. <laughs> and I was Canadian. I went, oh, so, sorry to your dean. Sorry, I'll t- okay. <laughs> but but basically, basically, uh, I really gave him uh, responsibilities and worked him and told him and made him responsible. And he took shit when he didn't do his job and blah, 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 blah. Um, and that's why I don't put my address on crew lists. <laughs> no, I went for my drink, but it's empty. No, I put, uh, did I'm you drink both of those no, beers? I have another one down here. Okay. Um, Tim is also, wait. No, I'm just joking. That was a Canadian fake. Holy, I bought it, dude. I was like, holy shit, he popped it open with his eye. <laughs> What a Canuck. Um, why'd you call him, why'd you, why'd you call him Jelly Bean? Uh, Jelly, well, I don't know why it's, a, oh, he, oh, I know why I call him Jelly Bean. He, he has, you may meet him. He has an uncanny resemblance to Harry Potter and he actually has the fucking glasses almost to the T. And I went, I kept calling him Harry Potter and HP and I was going, that, I feel rude because I feel like the bully on the schoolyard. So I said, I need to code this up. I need to change it. And he go, he said, uh, actually, Harry Potter's glasses, the, uh, what is it called? What's this part called? I, have no I forget idea. the name. What's this part called on a glass? Arm? Sure. <laughs> the arm. <laughs> he says the arm is actually in a different position on Harry Potter's glasses. I go, oh, fuck, you, you need a new name. So, so, Basically, what I basically I said, what do you like? And then he started to go off on. I go, give me something that you, I'm going to call you, so I don't feel like an asshole. And he basically started going off on this tangent, talking about something else. And then somewhere in there, he said, jelly bean. I go, that's it, your jelly bean. And instant, like everybody on the crew, like in a second, I, no one knows his real name. You may have a hard time finding him. He did. He literally said to me, and you can see it, and he was in the clip. He's, uh, he's actually featured in the movie at one point. He is, uh, <laughs> Jacob Harlow, the little boy, the boy who was killed before the movie begins. So at the funeral, that's the funeral for Jacob Harlow, and you see Jelly Bean is on the, on the, one of the placards. He's yeah. actually the picture of Jacob Harlow. One day during the shoot, I guess we were about three weeks in, um, I was like, hey man, hey, what's up, Jelly Bean? And he goes, ugh. Do you even know my real name? And I was like, yeah, man, Tim. I was like, why? You can't, can't call you Jelly Bean? He's like, you calling me Jelly Bean would be like Gretzky calling you Southwest. <laughs> oh. <laughs> he said that? That's awesome. <laughs> All right, then and there, I was like, I got to put him in the movie. <laughs> That's awesome. 
Um, all right, we're going to wrap it up for this week. Thanks for coming out. Give it up big time for Adam Joxman. It was fun. It was, right? Thank you. Find more funny shit like this at smodcast.com. There's so many to choose from. There are so many to choose from on the Smodcast Podcast Network. On Sundays, it's me and Scott doing the classic Smodcast, the show that started it all. Mondays, it's me and Ralph Garman doing Hollywood Babylon. There's so many to choose from. Tuesdays, you get a double shot of goodness, man. Malcolm Ingram's blowhard, as well as Red State of the Union Q&As, our podcast show about our forthcoming movie. There's so many to choose from. On Thursdays, drop the gloves with the puck nuts, the same guys that bring you Tell Em Steve Dave on Fridays. And don't forget on Saturdays, Jay and Silent Bob get old with me and Jason Muse. There's so many to choose from. You could try some shows that aren't so regular, just happen every once in a while, like Highlands, a peephole history, where me and people that grew up in the town I grew up look back at the town we grew up in. Smarriage at Smod Castle, where real live people get real live married by real Rev Kev. That'd be me. There's so many to choose from. Smodimations, that's where me and Scott are drawn as cartoons. They take little sections of Smodcast we've done and animate them, man, and make me even funnier somehow. And if you've ever been to Smod Castle, then you've met Matt Cohen, and Matt Cohen has his own show, Bagged and Boarded, which is also now at Smodcast.com. There's so many to choose from. I know you keep telling me, man, but did you know that most of the podcasts at Smodcast.com are recorded live in front of a studio audience at Smodcastle, our theater out in Los Angeles on Santa Monica Boulevard between Wilcox and Cole. There's so many to choose from. Scott, even at Smodcastle, there are so many to choose from. Every week, you could see Malcolm Ingram do his show, Blowhard Live. You could see me and Jason Muse doing Jay and Silent Bob Get Old. You could see Matt Cohen doing Bagged and Boarded. You can come see Tom Green do a show down there. You could see me and Mosier doing the occasional Smodcast 3D. There's so many to choose from. That's right. For one low price, a hundred bucks, you could see every show. That happens in Smodcastle for a month. Every show you go, you get that basically comes down to be like four bucks a show. I mean, come on, you can't get a better deal than that. Go to smodcastle.com slash smodpass for the smodpass, or just stay right here on smodcast.com and listen to any of the shows that we throw up there free for nothing because we love you. And guess what? There's so many to choose from. That's right, Scott. There are so many to choose from. Smodcast.com. There's so many to choose from.